Hey, Rob, what's up? How's it going? Um, hey, Sean. Uh, my name's Roberta, not Rob. Um, okay, wait. I, uh, is this the right call? I, I'm pretty certain I called called Robert Willing. How, um, how'd I yeah, get this? Yeah, um, I get that a lot. When I was creating this, I forgot to put the A in it. Well, to be honest, though, I was expecting you to also be a, a girl. Um, well, yeah, I know the name is kind of deceptive. It can be either. But yeah, I, I, I've i done this show for a while and I've always been a guy. That's that's really weird because I expected to speak to Robert. Is, um, and, uh, uh, John, uh, who are you talking to? I really don't know anymore. Hello, everyone, and after that awkwardness, I'd like to welcome you to an episode of Just One of the Guys, number 139. This is a Green Lantern podcast, and this is hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Show. My name's Sean Ingle, and I'm here to cover the comics from June 1990 until November 2004 that deal with Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner, specifically my two favorite Green Lanterns. And this time out, as it being episode 139, we're going to cover issue 139 of Green Lantern. This one was the second part of the Away From Home cycle that deals with Kyle and Jenny dealing with some terrorism problems. Yeah, it's a kind of heavy-handed look at uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but yeah, we'll get into that as well. Plus, we're also taking a look at the Elseworlds story, 1001 Emerald Nights, which is a very interesting tale about, well, the Green Lanterns in sort of, yo know, ancient uh, Arabia. It's basically a tale that mirrors the 1001 Arabian Nights story. And to do that story justice, I brought along a special guest. He's going to be hosting eventually an Elseworlds podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to have on the show for the very first time, Mr. Robert Willing. Now, this is Robert, not Roberta, right? Uh, yeah, that happens all the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's just... Forget it ever happened. Move on. I'm I'm going to make every attempt to do that. <laughs> but uh, Robert, it's great to have you on. Now you said you're working on uh, doing an Elseworlds uh, project. Uh, is that coming along pretty well, or what's going on with that? It's coming on slowly. I mean, I've never really done this before. In fact, like we can look at this episode as the backdoor pilot, so I can get my you know toes wet and all that. Okay, well I'm glad to have you on here, and I'm glad we're gonna get to talk about these issues. Uh, for right now, we'll go ahead and just uh, take a little break here, like I usually do. I'll go plug a couple of promos in here, and once we get back, we'll get started on Green Lantern number 139. Sound good? Yep, let's do it. All right. You never had a friend like me. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Yeah. <laughs> 
Captain America! It's a dying man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Someone like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that, that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? All right, and we are back. So let's go ahead and forego emails this time. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. The email address, as always, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Write in if you'd like to. Uh, the issue we're going to be covering right off now is Green Lantern number 139. This one was cover dated August 2001 with a release date of June 13th, 2001. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that information. The cover price, again, was 225 U.S. and 375 Canada, and the title was Away From Home Part 2. The writer was Jed Winnick, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Rich Faber, colors and separations were by Moose Bowman, the letterer was Chris Heliopoulos, associate editor was Michael Wright, and the editor was Bob Schreck. On the planet of Tendax, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner witnesses for the first time the utter grief of a mother who just lost her child to a senseless act of violence. Along with fellow Lantern and girlfriend Jenny Lynn Hayden, Cal offers to stay and help with anything that the planetary leaders need. And after Minister Elis exits from meeting with his council, he specifically tells the two Lanterns how they can help. You see, the attack was perpetrated by the Matak Israelis to stop the peace process with the Magdam Palestinians after the Matak were allowed to settle in their territory several years ago. What's even worse is the members of the Matayak group have just discovered the Vale of Gamok, an apocryphal tale of an area that grants people unimaginable power that just so happens to be true. Ellis tells Kyle and Jenny that he was witness to some members of his group becoming exposed to the toxins and turning into rampaging murderers. And now the group that's caused the train explosion is planning on doing the same thing. Ellis tells the Lanterns that it won't be that he won't hold it against them if they are forced to kill the Pataiac terrorist, and Kyle says that he won't be doing any killing. Unfortunately, that can't be said of the others on the planet, as Illus gets the word that his Magdan counterpart, Cleric Nagon, has been assassinated. Meanwhile, a remote, in a remote area of the Tendax Desert, Lord Stace and his companions have uncovered the burial site and are about to open the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, the Vale of Gamog. But the ceremony is broken up the, by the arrival of the two lanterns, who plan on putting a stop to the shenanigans. However, it's too late for them 
as the Mataic menaces have transformed into life-fielding horrors bent on taking over the planet and killing the Green Lanterns. Consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014 All Rights Observed, are dealt out amongst the mutated Mataic, with both Jenny and Kyle trying to subdue them rather than kill them. But the transformation has caused their bodies to not only increase in strength, but quickly enter a state of decomposition, which has left them susceptible to their heads accidentally being pulled off by a ring construct lasso. What's even worse is the decapitated head delivers a somber soliloquy to Kyle, saying that the violence won't end with him. Back at the capital, Kyle is brooding over the recent events. Coming from the medical lab, Jenny informs Kyle that the surviving members of Stace's group aren't expected to make it. To add to the bad news, Kyle says that Illis and his family were all shot and killed moments ago. Resolved, Kyle says that it's time that they go home. There's nothing they can do here. This is a holy war which both leaders who are working for peace are now dead, and he and Jenny can't be a part of it. Stunned, Jenny asks if they will ever come back, and Kyle says there's not going to be anything to come back to. Okay, Robert, what are your thoughts on this issue? And the heavy-handedness aside, I actually rather like the issue overall in that you always have some people who aren't in the comics. They ask, why it was superheroes don't they do this stuff and that stuff? The stuff that a layman would obviously be like, if I had superpowers, I'd do that. A holy war especially is something that's so complicated of an issue that, yeah, there's a reason why you don't touch it because you, there's no simple answer. And that I liked Overall, the execution, on the other hand, yeah. yeah. I can see your point, and I kind of feel more to the negative side, unfortunately. I was, I enjoyed this issue. The artwork in it is really good. The story, yes, is a bit heavy-handed. But it does, like you say, it does tell a good tale of these heroes having to deal with a real-world issue. But sometimes, I don't... Maybe, and this is just me specifically, sometimes I would rather them deal with more more real-world issues than the abstract. This one feels a bit too on the nose. The the two factions are specifically uh, analogs of the Israelis and the Palestinians, and it works all right, but... I'm just one of those people who, for my comics, I'd rather it, I'd rather it be more generic villains with generic concepts rather than these specific ones. Because when you do tend to get that, it does tend to get a bit heavy-handed, and it does t- depend. It does tend to get more the opinions of the creators than just you know a general storytelling. So that would be my only problem with this. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I mean. Mainly, the main reason why I do like that is the message by the last page. But like I said, the execution is where I have the problem with. But I am easy to please, I will be honest. I think a lot of people, when I do do my show, will notice that I'll be liking a lot of Elseworlds for certain things. And then, yeah, but we'll get to that later. Okay. Well, if you're ready, we'll go ahead and go through the book. Um, starting with the cover, uh, I... You know, it's there's nothing outstanding about it, but there's nothing bad about it. It's it's an average cover. I think the characters look really good. Winnick and Faber do a great job of drawing. I like Jenny's costume. Don't you mean Banks? Oh yeah, Banks. Yeah, 
am I thinking of? Winnick. You said Winnick. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at that. No, Winnick was the writer. Yeah, Banks and Faber do a great job here. I like Jenny's costume. I am kind of the bracelets at her wrist are kind of weird. It looks like she's got a couple of those Samsung watches on there. <laughs> but uh, eh, but she's got the fingerless gloves, so you know it's obviously ultra cool. So. Yep. Although, I, and I have to agree with that on the cover as well. I mean, I thought that it did look a little ominous. My one problem with that is Jenny's breasts don't look right. Yeah, um, we've had some problems in the past with uh, Banks getting Ginny's proportions a little out. And yeah, they do look kind of, they, they do look a little over-accentuated to, to just leave it. Now, now, I'd like to know something because I have, I'm coming into this blind. I'm more of a modern-day Green Lantern reader since Rebirth onward. So I've never read any of these before or after. Can you tell me why is Jenny not green? Well, she does she not look green in this? I mean, not in any of the scans I have where she looks where she's more of a prominent green. It's like her hair is green, but her face looks more normal in what I'm seeing. Hmm. See, because on the cover she looks pretty green, but I'm looking through the book. Yeah. Let's see here. And maybe it might have been something that got whitewashed with um. The, yeah. Well, she provided. She she looks a little she looks a little lighter green. Her hair is, you know, it may just be the coloring. It's yeah. I'm looking through. I'm looking through my comic here. The and and you know, she yeah, she doesn't look as green as she has like in earlier. But I think this is maybe more to the uh, to the so, coloring palette of this time. Yeah. You know, the, when we saw her like in the in her earlier issues, like when she was with uh, Infinity Incorporated and all that, I think the coloring was a bit more uh, wasn't as sophisticated. So her green had to be a bit more accentuated. At well, least they're right. trying to mute it a bit more. It was like on page nine when you see her and Kyle on the same panel. That looks completely like I can't tell the difference skin tone wise. Yeah, it is. Like I said, it is. They are trying to to mute it a bit. But in the right. you know on that third panel there, when you see her just by herself, I think it looks it looks fine. But she does. Oh, yeah. It it does look a little. Like I said, the the sort of blending in the colors. I guess this would be the separations. It, it looks she looks a little more lighter green than darker green, but you know, the coloring. Yep. Well, let's back up back to page one, of course, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, page one. Yeah, we get the uh, Kyle encountering this woman, meeting you know, who is who's discovered that her child has been killed because of the uh, train explosion. And this is where the heavy-handedness sort of sets in initially. I mean, no this, kidding. This is Winnick basically saying war is bad, okay? And it's just, yeah, we we get it. Terrorism is horrible. This is this is really awful. Uh, but I think this could have been far more subtly done than a woman screaming at the top of her lungs and holding her dead child's body. I think, I think it's better done at, on this third page where we see the ambulances and, you know, the, the bodies being covered by, uh, blankets and such and such. And the, uh, I guess the, the medics trying to treat people. I think that's a, a much better representation of them dealing out with this fallout. Yeah. The scary thing is though, I look back at one of the earlier pages. This came out at least with the cover date of August, 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, it's, what, what was next? The months after. Yep. 
that's where I'm like, yeesh. It's not as on the nose as Our World's at War, but... Yeah, I, I, I remember Our World's at War. That came out, and that didn't that actually have an image of like it was, the World yeah. Trade Center with uh, a portion of it burning? And, uh, no, it was uh, the LexCorp towers, which were twin yes. towers at the point, so okay. it was their equivalent. Okay, well, that see, because I had seen something online that, that showed... Uh, sort of prescient things that comic books had done and that was one of them and so yeah it being the LexCorp towers that makes more sense in the in the dc universe but still the image was pretty on the nose for what happened uh, to go back to page two a second though the look on the mother in that one that was just so weird because like she has her hand above her child not even touching it i mean i thought the last panel of the first page actually showed her grief this one looked more like she was they even looked like she was crying over a child. It looked like she was playing. Like if her kid was an instrument, it'd be more looking like she was singing a song. Yeah, it's Banks has had some some problems or some variation with his artwork. Sometimes his artwork during the story is really good and incredibly amazing, and then every once in a while you'll see a panel where you think it might be a bit rushed. And this is a good example of that. The uh, her facial features look a bit off. It doesn't really look like she's grieving. The way her mouth looks, it looks like, I don't know, it looks like she's kind of smiling. And yeah, her right hand there, the the way her fingers are extended is just really... And it's above her child. It's above it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I guess you could think that there's some sort of uh, ritual or something in their religion where they're trying to uh, use some sort of uh, energy to... uh, bring forth their spirit or something but that's that's really stretching for a no prize it, it's just a it's an awkward look there yeah um i really don't have notes until page six do you have anything until then uh just simply um i did like the look on their faces uh when the uh cleric is uh you know say you know saying so it couldn't have been these people and they're like uh yeah that I felt was actually a nice subtle moment, mm-hmm. and then you already beat me to the Ark of the Covenant joke. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There was the there was definitely a you know getting there to the there there was definitely an Indiana Jones feel here. Um, but on page six, um, if you don't mind me saying quickly, that I did like how what Judd Wink actually connects a natural phenomenon with religious beliefs. That I actually felt was something that makes a lot of sense in real world context that really did not feel that heavy handed. Mm-hmm. Although it does make it later on where it pretty much is the Ark of a covenant in a individual box in that. How is that a natural phenomenon? If it's in this little container thing? Yeah. Um, the, the fact that they, they, they have a, they have a sort of, yeah, like a container, a little, ancient Tupperware container that contains this gas that will turn people into these horrible mutants is kind of bizarre. But yeah, I do agree that making this mythical, even religious thing, an actual physical property that transforms people uh, and then having the myth come out from that is a nice, is a nice aspect of this book. It gives it, you know, and and it fits in with the book being sort of a sci-fi book. Uh, You can take things that people would, find 
supernatural or otherworldly or even you know have religious connotations and use science to explain them and that's kind of what i'm glad that uh you know winnick does in the story because and what's winnick he is um just want to say one other thing quickly with him was mysticalness i think he actually does pretty well when it comes to that if you ever seen his cartoon show Life and Times of Juniper Lee, that's all that was about. Exactly. Yeah, that's that is actually before reading any of his run in Green Lantern or anything else he did. I know he did Outsiders and uh, he did some other stuff for DC. My experience with him was uh, watching Life and Times of Juniper Lee. And I had a couple of girls who were growing up who were really into that at that age. And I would sit down and watch that. And I thought that was actually very cleverly written and was a nice it was it was a nice fun show that did deal with you know mystical things going on but dealt with them in a very real world manner so i think winnick is a good is a good fit for that sort of uh theme in this book exactly exactly let's see um i've got on page seven that uh ilias's cousin stays uh he's that ilias is okay with uh having him killed and this is just more shading of these people kind of being reprehensible uh, that that everyone on this planet is that they're willing to do whatever they need to do to get their side power or you know get their side to, to, to promote their ideals and it 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 again i think it's shading in the fact that and it's also the sort of bit of the heavy head in this saying that neither side in this conflict is completely right. So, eh. yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have to agree with that completely because, I mean, that's the one thing I also say throughout this whole story that with Kyle, he doesn't have all the facts. Nowhere in here will he get all the facts. And I think that's what leads to his decision at the end to leave is that he realized he'll never get the facts. It is not just a matter of facts. It's a matter of also viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, that is the one good thing that I think came out of this story is that even if we think we know everything about certain conflicts and we might as well take it to its natural conclusion because it was talking about Middle Eastern conflicts here, obviously that was the analog. Even if we side with a certain side, there are always going to be things that you could point to that show that that side that you're siding with has done some nefarious or some things, some nefarious things or some things that aren't wholly in the right. So I, I like the fact that Kyle comes to the conclusion at the end that yes, neither side is wholly and unjust, wholly and justly in the right. Right. Uh, one of the things with that page is Kyle's face on that last paddle. That is just. You know, I actually, I actually didn't mind it. The the, the I, mean, weird, I didn't mind it either. It just looked weird. Yeah, the weird sort of uh, you know twist in his, you know the Billy Idol twist in his face over to the left side is kind of odd. But I'm glad you know the the finger wagging thing is cool. And I think, oh yeah, the, yeah, that's fine. You know the and and Jenny looks good too. They both look very resolved at saying you know, you know once once Illa says I don't care if you kill him, and Kyle has been averse for the most part to mm. killing people now i i know in the current run the lanterns have the capability of killing i think it was during the sinestro Corps war uh, that was specifically for sinestro Corps men it was afterwards where they made a uselessly made a second rule say you can kill anyone 
okay. Because I, I, I remember in Sinestro Corps they said they can take that out because they had, you know, the Sinestro, the Sinestro Corps is basically like, what can you do to us? Nothing. So that's what they, so they basically reversed that after Sinestro Corps? Yeah. Uh, no, no. After Sinestro Corps, they expanded it. Oh, okay. To, to everyone else now. They're basically, they made a second rule that said lanterns can kill anyone, which happened not long after, um, Lyra, I believe her name was, the, that one, um, uh, Lantern with anger issues and all that. She was in Emerald Knights, the an anime movie, um, had oh, yeah. killed someone. So it felt like, oh, you do this rule after she loses her ring? Okay. But right. um, Jeff Johns basically saw it as he's taking the whole Green Lanterns or space cops thing further, and he felt cops can kill if needed. Now, they can't murder or be you know, executioners, but they should be having the right to kill. Okay, well, that makes sense then. Well, I mean, it makes sense also with why was Boudicca during that storyline? She wanted to kill, but having those thoughts turned off her ring. That's <laughs> not fair. Yeah. Um, My next note is on page nine, and this is just me being nitpicky, and this is just because me loving the movie Jaws. The fact that Jenny references Jaws in that, you know, we're going to need your bigger boat is, uh, you know, I, I'm not just keen on her using that in this sort of subpar to average comic but that's just me i agree with that i was just like really jen you're going against demons apparently and you're going to quote jaws well if we had a a demon shark show up maybe well don't don't say anything about demon sharks or sci-fi channel will get get the idea that i'm certain that's the i'm certain that's the third sharknado movie they're coming up with Hey, we've got Mega Shark or whatever. So. Oh yeah, they have Mega Shark and Crocosaurus. Oh, those were awful. Okay. Um, uh, my next note's on page thirteen, where they're opening up the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, the uh, Veil of Gamok. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering uh, if Eliopolis actually uh, looked for different lettering. If this is actual lettering somehow, or if this is like the Kryptonian stuff that DC had a uh, a, a Rosetta Stone for something, or if this might even be, because uh, it looks vaguely in ways Arabic. Uh, if you're looking, I'm looking on page eleven, that uh, yeah. third panel there. Some of that, some of the sort of squiggly things look yeah. remotely what uh, I've seen for uh, like Iranian language. So I don't know if they work something in there, but uh, it's interesting enough. I agree with that, but I wouldn't really know because I've never really seen much. I mean, seen a little bit going around the internet, but not anything that'd be like, oh yeah, definitely one way or the other. Mm-hmm. My next note is the uh, splash on page thirteen. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, with the, uh, the the people. The demon aside, I thought all the other creatures looked actually rather interesting, especially that one woman on the the left. Yeah, the the one with the blue, the sort of she kind of looks like if you remember the uh, the movie The Fifth Element. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I the, the Twilic like woman. Yeah, the 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 one who was the uh, opera singer or whatever. Yep, I can't yep. remember what her name is, but I yeah, don't know. They're they're interesting looking characters, uh, except for the Bat Demon, which looks just like an out of proportion, like I said, an out of proportion life held character. I know, and just generic. It's just like, of course, they had to have a demon specifically in all this. Uh huh. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what you get. Yeah. Um, one of the things that bugged me on page sixteen 
Mm-hmm. This is my next note. Uh, yeah. that, that well, I just I just simply liked all of the action on the next the, the pages afterwards. Oh yeah, there, you know the one thing that I liked about the you know from coming after the uh, Ron Mars run, moving to and uh, Jay Fairber and uh, Judd Winnick, is that they've done really good action stuff. Sometimes oh, yeah. sometimes it does feel like the action is minimizing the story a bit, and you get a little bit of the sort of written for the trade bit. But it's not it's not awful. It's not on the lines of, say, like the Ultimates, where the first chapter is, you know, takes you like five. World War Two. Yeah. So it's uh, it's good. But on the on this page here and this has bugged me kind of throughout the book, Kyle's constructs looking really too realistic. Yeah. Um, The ninjas in the background and the the uh, German uh, I wasn't even sure. sure those were constructs, even because of the they added more color than you know just green. Exactly, because if you look on the next page, mm-hmm. Jenny's construct is she's uh, putting the uh, characters in their little isolation chambers or whatever looks like a construct, mm-hmm. but Kyle's constructs look real. They have depth, they have shading, they you know, and Jenny even comments on that in the next on the next page. You know that his constructs are so strong and powerful so um, is this before ion yes this ion hasn't happened yet and i'm wondering if this is sort of seeding initially i think that's what yeah once you start describing that if the fact they had jenny pointed out i think that is meant to be intentional okay and that's kind of what i was thinking because like i've said in previous episodes here i have not read the winnick run and i'm starting this uh starting this basically from square one. Mm-hmm. So I know kind of about the Ion storyline and Kyle is supposed to become an all-powerful being, mm-hmm. but I don't know the specifics of it. And I think this is here seeding uh, what's going to be happening in the Ion storyline. So I'm, I enjoy it. But yeah, it would make it would make sense. This would be why Kyle's constructs look more realistic and look less like the te- stereotypical one color green construct. So. Yep. Uh, back to page 15 for a second. Yeah. I liked how um, Winnick used Kyle's past tense narrations for the exposition to put, get it out of the way to explain things a bit more. But again, at the same time, we still, uh, everything is still kept vague. I mean, we don't know all the details because Kyle's just guessing. Mm-hmm. Like, especially when he said, like, he doesn't know why they're fighting because just besides bad blood, because that's the only thing he can make sense out of. Yep. And, and you know, I've enjoyed Winnick as a writer, and despite the bits of this that are kind of heavy-handed, I think he does a good enough job at least depicting Kyle as being, realizing that he doesn't have all of the facts here. So I yep. think that works pretty well throughout this story. I'll just... Just to get out of my way, I've always had one problem with Judd Winnick, and that was his Green Arrow number 54. Okay. That one, I'll just get out of the way saying, I'm a huge female Dr. Light fan. He That was the one where he had the male Dr. Light depower her and basically drop her off a building. And left the last time we saw her, she was in a hospital bed, knocked over, possibly dying. Lord. And worse than that... He did, Judd Wang seemed to make it seem like, you know, Kimio had no instinct. He actually said through the omnipotent narrator, people would say her greatest weakness was her temper, but no, is that she lacked instinct? Bullshit. See, I've heard, 
I've heard positive things about Winnick specifically on his uh, Green Lantern run. Mm-hmm. But when I hear people talk about him on other things, such as team books like X-Men uh, and uh, books like the uh, Justice League Generation Lost that came out before the new 52. Oh, I love Generation Lost. Really? Because I heard people just, you know, saying that it was mischaracterizing you know, like the characters of ice and such. And so I, you know, I, 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 maybe I'm maybe, you know, well, everyone has different opinions, but right. I, oh, you I know, I know the mishandling of ice, yeah, the right counting that I can agree with, but I don't know if that was him himself choosing that or if he was told change her origins. Yeah. You know, that's a five year timeline going to be coming up and uh, <laughs> ice needs to be changed for that. No. I don't think that's what that was. Oh, well, um, let's see. Where's my next note? Yeah, sorry about that rant. I just need to get the hell out of the that's, way. That's okay. Um, <laughs> page uh, 19. Yep. Oops. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, that first panel did not look right. Just the fact that, you know, the head's at the bottom and all that. It just felt like, why can't we just see a little bit more of the torso and everything when you have all that space? Did we really need all of that space for the pledge? Yes. Uh, well... And, and and the thing that I, I got the fact that this this mystical plant fume stuff basically decomposes these people while turning them into near uh, you know demonic uh, powerful beings. So the fact that they're decomposing, yes, their bodies aren't going to hold together. But this was just kind of a a gross out moment. And then it's even amplified by the fact that the head reverts to its normal look and keeps talking to Kyle and basically does a big soliloquy of, Oh, you know, we're still going to be fighting. We're going to be warring. And yeah, it's, this is where it gets heavy handed again on this next page. I know it would have ended with me, but I was weak. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's what they all think. Yeah. The last part of the book pages, uh, 21 and 22. Um, uh, I'm glad that we get these nine panel grids. And uh, this is something you don't see very often in comics. And this is a way to tell, to get a lot of story and a lot of emotion in, in a limited amount of space. And I think uh, Banks does a good job with it. For the most part, the artwork looks really good. The the shading on Kyle in some of the scenes uh, works really well. And it, it, it sets up the fact that Kyle sometimes can't fix everything. Mm-hmm. And I think I think despite the heavy-handedness of this book, that's that's a decent message to take away from this that sometimes you know what you think of the solution to the problem isn't necessarily the solution. And I I like that they at least address that. I just they wish they could have addressed it in a less, you know, in your face obtuse way. Right. Uh, quick question. What was that flashback panel on page 21 in the bottom middle? Um, I think that was to the uh, last issue. In the last issue, Kyle came to the planet. He Basically, in the last issue, Kyle was invited to the planet by uh, uh, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, said that this planet was going through a peace treaty and they wanted Green Lantern to be there. But since Hal Jordan was gone... They wanted Kyle, so Kyle and Jenny went, and he was meeting – this is uh, Ilias's daughter, Ilias's daughter, and he Ooh. was just pace, basically playing this sort of – kind of like the Star Wars chess game with her mm-hmm. and just goofing around. And it was it was a nice way to show that Kyle was different from uh, 
Hal and that he had a better he had a bit more uh, interactability interactive ability to uh, well better ability to interact with people. He was more personable. And, and also, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. No, and he also and it basically also shows that you know these people were assassinated. Uh, right. I was so, just about to say that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but uh, yeah, it's it's not a great issue. It's an interesting issue. It's a very heavy-handed issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artwork in it is good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I, I've enjoyed Banks's art, and I think we're coming kind of near to the end of uh, Banks doing the art for a little while. I think he's got a few more issues coming out, and then it's going to be moving on to some other artists, and Unfortunately, moving on to uh, a different costume for Kyle, so I'll be interested in seeing what happens with that. Yeah, I so nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. Okay. Well, then we will call this. Uh, we will call this a wrap on this one. Uh, we'll probably take another break here. I'll plug in a couple more promos, and once we get back, we'll be taking a look at the Elseworld story, Green Lantern, A Thousand and One Emerald Nights. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school. And yet, you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back. So we're going to take a look at our second book. This one is a big one. It's Green Lantern 1001 Emerald Nights. This one was cover dated 2001 and released on March 21st of 2001. Again, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that information. The writer was Terry Laban, and the artist was Rebecca Gway. I think that's how you pronounce it. And the letterer was Bill Oakley. Uh, just to point out, the late Bill Oakley. Oh, really? 
Yeah, he passed away a long while ago, actually. In fact, found out about it in the um, dedication in the, the third volume of Just Imagine Stan Lee creating the DC Universe, that he oh. had passed away. And from what I've read, because he, could, he had cancer but couldn't get health care. Oh, sweet Lord. That's awful. Yeah, so every time I've heard people mention it, but they didn't know that, they thought it's about time someone brought it up. Well, that, you know, that's that's one of the terrible things about, you know, the comics creators is that a lot of time they're working for hire and, you know, specific health care is not what they get. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of people who are willing to support, what is it, the uh, Comic Legal Defense Fund and stuff yeah. like that. I know a lot of creators work through that. So if you guys are interested, that this is just a sort of tangent here, just. Uh, yeah, yeah, about that. Uh, Oops. Uh, uh, yeah, you've t- stolen that from me, so now I can't do it because you have a whole show dedicated to it. Uh, you'll have to talk to Michael Bradley about that. Uh, <laughs> that was that was his. I'm gonna throw him under the bus. That's his idea. <laughs> all right, all right. Then. But yeah, yeah. If you, it, it, you know, uh, I'm certain you'll be, you'll have plenty of uh, Elseworld stuff to cover aside from the tangent stuff. <laughs> okay. But we'll go ahead and get to the synopsis right here. Long ago, in the city of Iskafar, Prince Ibn Rainer rules over the city with an iron fist. He levies crushing taxes over his people, allows his armies to brutally suppress any dissent, and nightly has women brought up to his room to pleasure him, after which they are murdered. But one woman, Shirazad, vows to end his reign of terror as she uses her magic ring to transport away the nightly concubine, replacing her with herself. But upon entering the throne room of Ibn, Shirazad realizes that the prince isn't the despot she was led to believe. He is a good and caring man, simply seeking company, whose life was manipulated by the Grand Vizier. Seeing the good in him, Shirazad begins to tell him a tale to teach him how to rule wisely like his father. Long ago, there was a poor fisherman by the name of Al-Shordan. You get it. Okay. Al's poverty wasn't due to personal misfortune. He lived under the rule of a corrupt sultan who oppressed the people of Al's village. One day, Jordan came across a strange blue man desperately clinging to some rocks in the sea. Al took the man back to his home in an attempt to heal him, but he told Al that he was dying and needed to have Al help him in other ways. You see... He was a wizard of a far-off land who was able to harness the magic of genies that they kept in lamps. He was tracking another wizard, one who was evil, perhaps even sinister, get it, (laughs) to stop him from unleashing his evil upon his fellow man. With his dying breath, the wizard hands Jordan the lamp and tells him to continue to fight for good. Al wonders exactly what type of fighting he should be doing with his magic, and the answer comes in the form of the Sultan's tax collectors who are shaking citizens down for no reason. Holding the lamp, Jordan calls forth the genie, who proceeds to deliver some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the thugs. Winning the support of the people, Jordan heads to the Sultan's palace to discuss the transgressions, as the genie provides Al with suitable dress and transportation. Reaching the palace, Jordan pleads his case to the Sultan, but his words fall on deaf ears. Fed up with the bull Shiite, Jordan unleashes the genie, but is quickly taken down by the Sultan's genie, who happens to use yellow magic, 
powerless, Jordan is locked in the palace dungeon, but luckily his rugged manliness has made the Sultan's daughter, Katna, okay, all moist in her lady parts for him. She was able to make off with the lamp and hands it back to him, telling him that he can take out the yellow genie with a little strategy. And that he does. Well, if by strategy you mean lopping off the vizier's hand with the scimitar, taking the yellow lamp and commanding the genie to return to it. Crisis averted, and the vizier having buckled off, Jordan marries Katna and becomes the Sultan of the Kingdom. With the story con concluded, Ibn thanks Sherzad for the tale, and she informs him of the moral of how to justly use power. This knowledge might come in handy as the vizier comes in to take away last night's concubine. But Rainer forbids the vizier from taking Sherzad away, instead telling him to GTFO. This shocks the vizier as he was hoping he would be close to gaining the favor of the people of Isafkar, sure, who despised the prince. It also shocks Rainer as he had never grown a pair to take on his men, but all the stress of yelling at some asshat has wormed him out as Rainer passes out after a long hard day of listening to someone tell him stories. Having slept the day through, Rainer wakes up to find Sherazad in his room with more of the story to tell. Of course, Jordan and Katma ruled the city of Alcazar for many years, until Katma was killed by, the poison, by a poisonous snake bite. Hoping for a magic resurrection, Jordan summons the genie and tells him to bring Katma back to life, but the genie regrets that he cannot do that. Devastated, Jordan throws the lamp into the sea, which might have been a bad move as the sinister vizier views the disposal being a scrying pool. Summoning two powerful demons, the vizier has them take him to the yellow lamp that was held in the palace, and upon obtaining the lamp, the vizier has the yellow genie send them back to hell. With the vizier back in power, Jordan flees the city and heads out for the sea. There he witnesses the face of the old wizard floating on the surface of the ways, and the wizard tells him to make his way to the old man in the sea, who has the lamp Al foolishly tossed away. Reaching the old man's lair, Al is allowed to regain the lamp, provided he gives him a silver apple from the Tree of Eternal Life. This is all very complex. Heading out to the island where the tree grows, Al finds that it is guarded by four ogres. Knowing that he can't fight his way past them, Al dresses up like a woman, as you do, and offers to marry the strongest of them. This sets them fighting amongst each other, which is distraction enough for Al to steal the silver apple, head back to the old man, and retrieve the lamp. Releasing the genie, Jordan heads back to, heads back to Alcazar to confront the vizier and his yellow genie, which he defeats because comics. But as the genie is trying to subdue the vizier, he drops dead due to a heart attack. Okay. The next part of the story finish, Sherzad spells out the moral of not shirking responsibilities to Rainer. But with the new day dawning, the vizier and his cronies arrive once again to try and take Sherzad in, but this time Eben has the vizier arrested and taken to the dungeon. While in lockup, the vizier tells the guard to have his troops start a riot in the marketplace, one which will end with the death of the prince. Back with Rainer, Sherzad tells him of the ill will his people have towards him, due to the nightly stream of executed girls. Realizing that he has to flee, Eben and Sherazad dress in common clothing and sneak out of the main gate. Of course, all of this action causes Rainer to get tuckered out and fall asleep. The next evening, when Rainer awoke, Sherazad finished her tale of Al Jordan. Being all mopey over the death of his wife, Jordan had forsaken his watch over the city of Alcazar, which allowed the demons that the visitor summoned to break free and destroy the town. Eventually, when he decided to go back to the town, 
the genie told him of, destruct, of the destruction of the demons. Distraught over the de devastation, Jordan has the genie taken to the place where the wizards reside. There, he demands that the wizards justly return the city to its former state, but the wizards decline and Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, breaks out with the genies blowing each other up real good. This, for some reason, destroys the two genies, but creates a magical ring, which the wizards give to Jordan, allowing him to do whatever he wants with it. Of course, Owl recreates Coast City, I mean Alcazar, and Katma, and lives happily ever after. With the final story finished, Rainer decides it's time to man up and take back his own city. Riding back into town, Rainer confronts the Vizier as Sherazad uses her magic ring to take out the Vizier's men and free the troops loyal to the prince. Having defeated evil in the city, even Rainer declares that he will rule justly, with no brutal beatings to collect taxes or daily murders of girls for his pleasure, which is a great campaign platform. Of course, the Sultan and Sherazad marry and rule the city with grace and wisdom. Eventually, even Rainer finds out about Sherazad's ring and how she knew of these fantastical stories, since she was the daughter of Sultan Al Jordan and Queen Cadma. Huh, that was a long one. Um, so, what do you think about these, Robert? What do you think about this one? I thought this is one of the more original Elseworlds that I have read, actually. I mean, it was pretty clever in, well, first of all, the specific stories they used. The one, uh, I actually looked it up. They used the bookending ideas of um, Shirazade actually be telling a sultan a, uh, or prince a story or in that case, it was to keep herself alive, and then by the end of all the tales, the prince had fallen in love with her and married her. Mm -hmm. Then you had the fisherman and the genie, the Odyssey, obviously, Sinbad the sailor, and, and for those two made up most of the second one. The third one, yeah, that's entirely Emerald Twilight. I couldn't find any adaptation from anything else there, but I'm surprised, actually, the only thing from Aladdin, really, is just the idea of lamps and rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... There's really, uh, I, I unfortunately have not read the 1001 Arabian Nights. I did a little research on it. And yes, I found that most of the stories do have parallels to that. The idea in the 1000 Arabian Nights was Sherazade was actually the daughter of the vizier that the prince actually had come to him. He was supposed to be, or Sherazade was supposed to be one of the concubines that eventually, you know, he was going to sleep with and then have executed the next day. But she was able to stay that execution because she told him these interesting stories that eventually ended with sort of a cliffhanger ending that she would have to continue. That she would tell him she would continue on on the next night. So that's the way she kept entertaining him and eventually won him over and you know turned him into a better person. So I like that aspect of the story. Uh, it was a good Elseworld story. The the artwork and story definitely have a vertigo feel and i think that's pretty apparent because the writer and artist are essentially known for their vertigo work over at dc uh -huh. it, it, it is it is painted well the characters don't look distinctly like 
They look sort of in an abstract way, like the characters of Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner, even uh, uh, specifically Katma, who's supposed to be obviously an analog for Katma Tui. Which I felt that actually made sense at trying to come up with like a Carol or whatever. But like Katma, that name kind of fits into the idea of the Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. Yeah, it, so, it sounds more exotic than Carol. Carol sounds more Western and it doesn't have the sort of Middle Eastern feel. So I like that they use the name Katma. And it, it also works. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a fellow Green Lantern and it, it works in the story. But I don't really have any specific notes for it. Like I said, this was... This was a long one. The uh, the artwork's pretty. It does have a very vertigo feel, uh, but I think the story works really well. Do you have any specific notes or anything? Uh, actually, I do. Actually, I have quite a bit. Actually, okay, uh, go for it. Um, well, for one thing, the genie being Kilowog, that I loved. I thought, who better would you think of looking on the Green Lantern myself that would look like the big, powerful lamp genie mm-hmm. than I, Kilowog? No, I did. I did enjoy that. That was that was kind of fun to see. You know, it was a nice homage to to the Green Lantern books that you had the the GDB in Kilowog. So I enjoyed that. Um, the the wizards being the guardians. That's that, that's another thing. You know that they're sort of omnipotent beings. Uh, I did now, like I did like how it was Gansett. Let's say that was Gansett and not Abin Sur. Or anything like that, because they kept it with the mysticalness and not try to bring aliens into it. I mean, Kilowog notwithstanding, and I that I think was how they were able to keep it, yeah, contained to mysticism. I liked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking at uh, I don't know what exactly what page it is, but it's the page where Owl's dealing with uh, Ganthet, the uh, wizard in his uh, home, mm-hmm. and that bottom panel there, where you see the good. see the uh, wizards dealing with the. Uh, the sorcerer who uh, went away from their path definitely has a look of Sinestro. You know, yeah. facially he looks a lot like Sinestro, and uh, the the way I see it colored here, it's sort of that yellowish green to give it that uh, distinct color that he's using the yellow magic here. Yeah. I kept thinking that the vizier. I had to one keep on wondering the evil vizier that had the yellow genie. I kept wondering, is that still the same wizard or? You know, older, or did this guy just simply get his hand on the lamp or whatever? I don't know, because he doesn't specifically look like the Sinestro that we saw in that previous thing. It, it could be, you know, it could be just because he's drawn with the the various stereotypical goatee, longer beard thing. But he, he does have the very raised, arched eyebrows. So uh, there's a possibility that he could be the same character with the uh, yellow magic, yellow genie. But... Yeah. But, but also overall, yeah, Al Jordan, which if you know is not long after the first story, he goes to Ibn Jordan afterwards. Now, I noticed the, the phrase Ibn getting thrown around, and I'm wondering if that's more a title than an actual name, sort of I like Prince or something, because eventually they move to calling uh, Rainer or Prince Rainer Ibn as well. So I'm wondering if that's a, a title of respect, like Sir or something like that. But I, right. I unfortunately, because I don't prepare at all, I didn't go look it up. I, I didn't look that much up either, but I did like how using basically Kyle as the prince being told the stories and Hal being from the past again, that it, and it, it works very well for that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, 
the, in fact, the only thing that ever really bugged me throughout this whole story was when it was revealed that the old, a old man of the sea that um, Jordan had to get the apple for and all that. He says here why his genie is now invulnerable is because a favor from the old man, yet nowhere in that scene did it happen. He got the lamp, wished to go back, and, you know, and the old man never gave him that favor. So that was the only real problem I ever had in this whole story was that out-of-nowhere explanation. Yeah, comics. Yeah. I guess you could just you know slough it off for that. But uh, yeah, what else? What else do you have? Uh, like I said, uh, my notes are pretty minimal. Right. Well, also, I hate. It sounds a little weird, but a few pages prior with um, Jordan dressing up as a woman, that actually looks convincing. Yeah, that that was one of those things I thought was a bit odd, <laughs> but it, it it works. Let me get to that page here. But yeah, well, I'm just saying it looked very convincing. That's all that, um, you know, you look at it because it felt like something you would see in a Sinbad or whatever where Sinbad would have been forced. Since that's clearly, this second story is from the Odyssey and Sinbad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the fact that she's, or he is completely covered, essentially from head to toe except for his eyes, you know, would deceive these troll-like beings. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that is that is a nice thing, and I, I I like the fact that they they get a bit of Harryhausen in here with the uh, giant trolls getting a uh, chance to fight and beat each other up. Right. And there's there's some there's some you know off panel violence going on there, so that's always cool. Yep. And uh, the last my last bit of notes is about the last story, the whole basically the Emerald Twilight adaptation. Mm-hmm. I thought that was actually very surprisingly well handled, especially with the setup for these demons attacking in the second story and how that all played out. I mean, why couldn't we, why couldn't it have ended up like something like that with Helen on the actual story? <laughs> well, I think it, I think the whole thing here is that the, the wizards in the end eventually said, okay, you can go ahead and recreate coast city. Um, Alcazar and <laughs> and in Emerald Twilight they basically said no how you can't you can't use your power to you know bring life back so well more precise they most of them were dead by the time they got to things being you know like the level it got in that star in the true story. so yeah there you go but yeah this was this was an interesting thing you know like I said uh, a lot of these Elseworld stories and a lot of these uh 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 Stuff that uh, stuff from this era are out of my wheelhouse, and it's nice to get a chance to take a look at them. And so far, I've been pretty pleased with most of the stuff. Um, I've I've quite enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward. Uh, I've got some more stuff down the line. In fact, next time out, I'm gonna be taking a look at uh, what is it? Green Lantern. Oh, it's the one, the Asian one. Let me pull up. My oh, phone. um, um. Uh, I believe Jade Dra- Dragon or something, something like that. that. Yeah, uh, I, I have it over there. That, that is technically an Elseworld, but it was never stated in it to be an Elseworld. I think it was a case of Doug Mowick, um, what, and was right when wrote it as his telling what a in what he thought would be in canon of the first person to get the Green Lantern, which we never heard about this tale of. But I think the way it played out, then they real some people have afterwards said, "Nah, that's not canon." So it's an unofficial elseworld tale yeah because um i read yeah it's green lantern dragon lord that's what it is dragon lord right. um yeah because i do remember early in the uh, green lantern run 
Uh, uh, the Alan Scott had, Greenland. Yeah, the one. Alan Scott one. He had a story where they actually brought Martin O'Dell back to do some art on the story, and they talked about a an Asian Green Lantern. I I wish I could remember. I do a podcast about this. I should remember this stuff. But they <laughs> but they brought a character back, and he was supposed to be the first Earth's first Green Lantern, and he kind of had a problem like Sinestro and let the power go to his head. So the Guardians banished him and put his essence into the lantern or so that but uh, well he's not the only earth green lantern that like the power get to him there was another one along the time of um of alan's god called malvolio which was in the action comics weekly mm-hmm. that's that's the one i've got to get to because i've heard uh thomas dj who's been on the show is a big fan of malvolio and he he comments about him so i get oh really oh really i'm a big fan of him too but that's mostly from the graphic audio sleeper story that that's another thing that i need to get i've heard all three of those uh and that was written by uh christopher priest uh i believe he wrote i believe no it was priest who worked on i think there was a bunch of ghost writers involved as well but i felt kyle was good in the first one but the third one where it focused all on hal jordan he was, ugh, what did they do to Kyle on that one? They made him more of a jerk. Hmm. And like, it basically, it was like, they propped up, it's what everyone saw Jeff Johns would have done with um, Rebirth. Propped up Hal and made Kyle look like he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that, looking back on it, um, I I kind of had that opinion of that's what Rebirth did, but it's not the case. Jeff Johns was respectful with the character of Kyle, and I think going forward from that, I think Kyle has, yes, he hasn't been front and center, which is what I would have liked, but I understand that they wanted to put a recognizable face of Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern role, but you know, it didn't diminish Kyle to the effect that I thought it did. Yeah, um, and just a fair warning, because I know you got also evil mics coming up. That one is, I'm a bit torn on that one. I mean, it's Howard Chaikin. And one of the last works of Marshall Rogers. Um, don't and since I asked this from the man himself, Chaikin, and just maybe you can know this, he actually stated that he did not care working with Marshall Rogers. His Rogers just did his own thing was what he was given, and not what Chaikin wanted. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will uh, have to see how that works out then. But yeah, that's sure. that's down the line, and you know, I've got a, I've got a lot of stuff coming down. So, yeah. but uh, Robert. Uh, I know this is, is this like your first time really doing any uh, specific podcasting? Yes, it is. Um, the only other time I was ever on something like this was the 100th episode of Views from the Long Box, but that was just a quick hi-bye. Well, I am glad to sort of be the one to bring you into this. I'm hoping eventually you get on to the whole Elseworlds thing, and I can't wait to listen to that. Uh, do you have anything uh, out there on the internet that you'd like to plug before we finish this up? Not really, no. I mean, I just write fan fiction on DeviantArt, but I don't care to share that stuff. So. <laughs> oh, you're not wanting to share fan fiction? That's that's surprising. Uh, well, I do also have commission. Well, it's most of my stuff, my good stuff is still in my head. That's the thing. So it's all my not-so-good stuff that's still out there. Okay, well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, you know, when you let when you start up with the Elseworlds project, let me know. If you cut a trailer, please uh, let me know about it, and I'll be certain to put it in rotation on the show all right i will do that well thanks everyone for downloading and listening thank you again robert for coming on the show and being willing to talk about this these <laughs> yeah i had a great time it was no, no, I mean, I mean, you made a pun there oh i robert did willing 
<laughs> I don't even think about that. That's how. That's that's when I just talk for no apparent reason. But thank you, everyone, for coming to the show, and thank you for downloading and listening. And we will see you in seven days for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern. The opening music for today's show was Robin Williams singing Friend Like Me from the movie Aladdin. Yeah, it's kind of melancholy knowing the fate of Robin Williams, and he is very much missed. But his wonderful song from this wonderful movie is still available for anyone to listen to or watch. And if you'd like to do either of those things, I would suggest that you go to Amazon.com to pick up either the movie, the soundtrack, or the mp3 of the song. And the best way to get to Amazon.com, again, of course, is through 2TrueFreaks.com. If you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you can be transported to Amazon.com where any purchase that you make, whether it be the movie Aladdin, the Blu-ray, the DVD, the album, if you'd like to buy any Robin Williams material, it would be a nice gesture to support a a comedian who passed away far too soon. Anytime you make a purchase from Amazon.com, a little bit of the money that you spend comes back to the Two True Freaks website. You don't see any extra taken out of your pocket, but it really helps us out. So if you're ever thinking of buying movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, entertainment of any sort, and you want to shop at Amazon.com, please use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com.